listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Let the Bible Speak. We're going to take a break from our regular series in Revelation and consider an important topic, a topic worth considering on this Easter weekend. It is an aspect of the Easter story that is often neglected. And we're going to have a look at the account of the Lord's burial as it is contained in Mark chapter 15. The gospel, according to Paul, is a gospel that includes the Lord's death and his resurrection and, importantly, his burial. And so I'd encourage you to listen on and I trust this message will be a blessing to your soul as we consider the importance of Christ's burial. Once more, if you'd like to get in touch with us, uh, please do so at malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We're always glad to hear from you. Well, please take your Bibles again and turn back to Mark chapter 15. Please turn to Mark 15. And then read to you again the words of verse number 42 and 43. Mark 15, verses 42 and 43, the word of God says, And now when the even was come, because it was the preparation that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph Arimathea, an honourable counsellor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, we read the inspired apostle's account and a summary of the gospel. What is the gospel that he presented, delivered unto us? Well, we read that Christ died according to the scriptures. We read that he rose again according to the scriptures. That much we expect. We expect to hear about his death and resurrection. But Paul, in his summary of the facts of the gospel, also says, and that he was buried. And that he was buried. Now we should not, for a second, think that the burial of Christ is simply a link between his death and resurrection. It is not simply a necessary incidental event of history. Rather, it is vital in the very gospel of Christ itself. We read here in Mark's account of the verses. It's an account of history. It's a narrative of the events regarding the burial of Christ. But for Paul, he saw it as more than simple history. Part of that has to do with the fact that the Roman custom at the time was to let the bodies of those crucified rot on the cross and be devoured by birds. That was the general custom, the convention, that those who were crucified, they were not worthy of a dignified burial. When the practice was accommodated to be used by the Jews, this was not permitted under Jewish law. So the Romans had their practices. But when it came to the Jews uh, being in Jerusalem at this time, the Romans understood to some degree Jewish law and they, they allowed them to take the bodies down. But they were often cast into a common grave. We know from Deuteronomy chapter 21 that the body shall not remain all night upon the tree. 
There was a need for burial in Deuteronomy 21. And thus you read the account here. It was a day before the Sabbath, Mark 15. But also in John chapter 19, if you turn there briefly. We're going to go back and forth. John chapter 19 and says there in verse 31, The Jews therefore, because it was the preparation, that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the Roman customs had been accommodated to really allow for the conventions of Jewish law and ceremony. But again, humanly speaking, the Lord's body could have been subject to the most degrading treatment. Roughly taken down, subject to profanation and thrown into a public grave with those executed with him. But his heavenly father had by an extraordinary providence so prepared events to protect the Lord from public humiliation. Note the change in the tone of the narrative. The death of Christ, the humiliation, the mockery. And then those words, it is finished. It is finished. And the note of the narrative changes from the trial to the mockery to the crucifixion. And then we're going to see the glory of resurrection and the angelic host. But in the middle, we see the burial as the hinge upon which the tone changes. The Lord is spared from the public humiliation of a common grave. And we see he's treated with dignity. His body is treated with honour, fine linen, in which he's wrapped and he's laid in a sepulchre, hewn out of a rock, a grave in which no man had ever laid. The change of scene. And so as we look at this event, we are seeing something that is, that is vitally important in our Christian understanding, the, the matter of the Lord's burial. And so what, what I want to do is I want to look at it from two different perspectives. I want to see what the Lord did in a man's life to enable the burial to be conducted in such an honourable fashion. What did the Lord do in Joseph's life? Preparing him in such a way that the Lord's body would treat with such respect and dignity. And then I want to look at it really in terms of the, the theology, the Matters of why. Why was the burial so important? Why did it matter what happened at this point in the Lord's life story? So first of all, let's look at this historically and how that it furnishes us with an illustration of sacrificial service. It shows us what God did in a man's life that he would sacrifice for the glory of his Savior. Joseph, he is the prominent figure in Mark's account we know from the other accounts that Nicodemus was involved and there was likely servants also involved in the process. But Joseph here is the one that is highlighted. Verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea went in boldly unto Pilate. Let's look at Joseph under a few headings. First of all, his biography. We're told in verse 43, he is Joseph of Arimathea. This was a city of the Jews. We read that in Luke 23. But more than being born and raised in the city of the Jews, he was a member of the ruling Sanhedrin council. 
This council that had some authority under Herod to then govern the people of God and to bring judgment over in Luke 23. Turn there briefly, verse 50. And behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and a just. The same had not consented to the council and did of them. It's a reference to the council's determination to put Christ to death. And Joseph, he did not consent to that. Now, the general thought is that the the word literally means he did not vote. And so it may well be the case that he was absent from that council's consideration. For we also know that at that time he he, he believed in Christ, but yet had some fear because of the Jews. So it may be the case that Lord, even providentially here, spared him from having to be present when the Sanhedrin passed their verdict on the Lord. But beyond that, he's a member of the Jewish council. He's described, in, uh, again, Mark, as an honourable man. He was respected by the other rulers. He was not a peripheral figure. He was a man of dignity and respect. A good, upstanding Jewish citizen. Respectable and respected. He was the last person expected to take a despised criminal off the cross. I love the way the Lord does things by the last person expected. Rahab, the harlot. Moses, the murderer. David, the adulterer. You name all of these things. The Lord is pleased to do his best work through the most surprising circumstances. But note also his belief. We have a few statements about Joseph regarding the state of his heart. We know from John 19, he was a disciple of Jesus but secretly for fear of the Jews. We know from Mark 15, he's said to be those of waiting for the kingdom of God. That's verse number 43. We know from Luke, we've just read Luke, he was a good man and a just. So how do you put all those things together? Well, what you see in Joseph is an example of someone who's in that transition period between the Old Testament and the New. Waiting for the kingdom, waiting for the redemption of Israel. He was one who was looking for Messiah to come. He had, he, had, he had heard the Old Testament truths and had believed the promise of God that a Messiah would come who would redeem Israel. But he, unlike others, saw the redemption coming to pass in the person of Jesus. Now, his fear of the Jews was understandable, but not excusable. It's often pointed out that because His fear is described in John's gospel in contrast with his boldness. It's making the point that his his fear has been removed and boldness has come in its place. God's working in Joseph's life. An unexpected individual in the hand of God, providentially prepared, but born again of the Spirit of God that he would serve God with his life. It's a wonderful story. It's a wonderful story of what God does by his gracious purposes. He saved this man, which leads in turn to his boldness. Verse 43, he went in boldly. It's remarkable considering his position, but he has the rank and the ability to thereby approach Pilate. He has the means. It's remarkable, but it's part of God's sovereign plan. But his boldness comes in contrast to his prior fear. He's not acting in a way that will provoke the anger and the hostility of his own brethren and indeed the whole nation. 
Fourthly, then, we think of his benevolence. The level of generosity here is remarkable. Verse number 46. He bought fine linen and took him down, wrapped him in the linen, laid him in a sepulcher which is hewn out of a rock. This is a display of tremendous kindness and benevolence to the body of his Lord and Saviour. Fine linen. We know also that involved the mixture of myrrh and, myrrh and aloes. Again, let me borrow from Calvin. He says this. When Christ had endured extreme ignominy on the cross, God determined that his burial should be honourable, that it might serve as a preparation for the glory of his resurrection. The money expended on it by Nicodemus and Joseph is very great and may be thought by some to be superfluous, but we ought to consider the design of God who led them by his spirit to render this honour to his own son. When you see the burial through the eyes of Joseph, you see you see the sovereign work of God enabling this man to perform this task in the very purposes of God. It is a reminder to us again of what God does in a man's life. And allow me to pause for a second by asking you consider this burial. It affords us a view of, of what grace does in someone's life. Whom having not seen, we love, First Peter, yet believing. Here's a believing man. It says he believed in Jesus and he believes in, and he loves the Lord. And by grace, he comes to love the Lord. He loves the Lord as one that's saved. You know, God is able to save the seemingly impossible. There are two counts which render Joseph unlikely to enter the kingdom. He is rich and he's religious. How hard it is for the rich man to enter the kingdom. The Lord came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Here's an upstanding, righteous, religious man who's also rich and yet he's saved. God's able to do that. And so we see in this man's case what grace does in producing love and the love is such that eventually it overcomes every human fear. It's what God does by grace. It is a wonderful display of grace from someone who comes to love the Lord. So that's something of the background here, looking at this matter through the, li- the, through the life of Joseph and seeing, seeing the burial in light of God's work in his life. But secondly, having thought about it historically, let's think about it theologically. Theologically. For theologically, this burial It demonstrates the purpose of God in redemption. We see the sovereign purpose of God in the man's life. We also see the sovereign purpose of God in the life of all of God's people. This goes beyond Joseph. Now what happens when we read Mark 15, we suffer from the affliction. It is the malady of a well-taught people. And we lose the surprise of this portion of scripture. We know the story. We've heard about it since we were in Sabbath school. Uh, the youngest of children, we, we know the story of Jesus being buried in a new tomb. And so we lose the surprise, but this event is so unlikely. These crucified criminals are not afforded this dignity and this honour. I've mentioned the transition that is so stark from oppression, injustice and hostility. We now come to see the great dignity with which the Lord's body is handled. Alexander, the commentator, says this. 
The insults of the soldiers and the rabble and the rulers are now followed by the tenderest affections of refined and tender friendship. The scourge, the buffet and the spittle by delicate perfumes and spices. The mock robe and thorny crown by pure white linen and the tomb where no corpse had rested. Do you see the contrast here? Foes replaced by friends. Spittle by perfume. A mockery of a crown of thorns and a robe with this fine linen. The contrast is stark. And this is happening in the sovereign hand of God. God, as I said, has been moving giving a man a new heart and a love for Christ Jesus. Why? Why was this so necessary? Why did this all take place? Well, three reasons, and then we're close. First of all, the Lord's burial is necessary to show off the fact of his death. The timing of the Lord's burial is significant because it forced the authorities to ascertain, was he truly dead? The burial's part of that story, that narrative. They were surprised that he was already dead. But you look at verse number 43. Pilate goes, or Joseph, sorry, goes in boldly unto Pilate. And Pilate marveled, verse 44, is he already dead? Has he been dead a while? And when he knew it of the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. It is vital that the Lord's death was confirmed. And established. The Lord, I believe, knew that in the annals of history, there'd be those who would rise up and say, he didn't really die. You see, the resurrection is so important to Christian truth. No resurrection, no faith at all. So the devil brings about a conspiracy theory against the resurrection. And one of the most popular conspiracies is he didn't really die. And so the Lord, in his sovereign wisdom, puts together a plan that there is uh, no doubt, incontestable proof of the actual death of Jesus. Not a fainting, not a pretense, but a real man who really died. In theological terms, the Lord's human soul goes to paradise to be with the Father. The Lord's Human body goes to Joseph's grave. The Lord, he experienced real human death, which we understand to be the separation of body and soul. The Lord experienced that. Today, you shall be with me in paradise. His body is taken to the grave. He truly died. He truly experienced that separation. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. And the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Now you say, the Lord did not sin. But on the cross, he took our sins. He took our sins and our sorrows. He made them his very own. And so truly and legally before God the Father, he's guilty on the cross. And the soul that sinneth, it must die. Christ truly died. And the burial is part of the historical narrative that proves that event to be so. He really died. His death, not for his own sins, but for our sins. You see, when you read of his burial, you, you can be assured that he took your sins. Amen. You can be sure he actually paid the price. It wasn't a pretense. It was real. 
Which means that the price, the wages of your sins were paid by him. And so you come, you come and you receive the elements and you, you take communion and you, you remind yourself again, he died for my sins according to the scriptures. That's the confidence, that's the assurance and the burial is part of that process. Oh, it takes the sting out of death, doesn't it? We see Jesus made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. That through death he may destroy him to the power of death. Christ's death takes a sting out of death. Amen. We stand at the grave of a loved one and we, we're conscious of, of the pain and the agony of that last enemy that's death. But Christ's burial is rested upon the truth of his death and his truth takes away death's sting. Amen. Christ destroyed him out of the fear of death or the, uh, the power of death that he might deliver those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The Lord's burial is necessary. It's vitally necessary to establish the fact of his death. It's also necessary for the fulfillment of all scripture. That's important also. The burial is part of scripture being fulfilled. To turn back to Isaiah 53. That's where our minds go. Isaiah 53, verse number 9. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. There's a, a prophecy of Messiah, the suffering servant. But if that verse had not come to pass, you would have no confidence in the previous verses. Amen. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with the stripes you're healed. You've no, you've no confidence in those verses. If he does not make his grave with the rich in his death. These things all come to pass. But beyond that, they're all the types and shadows of the Old Testament scriptures. Leviticus 4, Leviticus 6, even the red heifer in Numbers 19. The ashes were taken outside the camp. And where do they go? Every time they go to a clean place. It was necessary that the impact of the atonement was taken outside. The sacrifice was made. The ashes, if you like, the, the, the products of the atonement, physically speaking, those products are taken and put in a clean place without defilement. This grave, no man had laid in this grave. It's clean. It's not touched or tainted with death itself. It's a fulfillment of the scriptures. You know, young people, you do not need to wonder who the Savior is. No need to doubt or wonder. All the evidence shows it all comes together to a measure beyond, beyond mathematical calculation. It all comes together. There is only one person who fulfills all the promises of history. All the Old Testament predictions that are fulfilled in Christ Jesus. The only saviour of sinners. The Lord's burial necessary for the fulfillment of all scriptures. And finally, the Lord's burial is necessary for the freedom of the saints. You turn to Romans chapter 6. From Romans chapter 6, we have another reference by Paul to the Lord's burial. And it emphasizes the importance of the burial in terms of our union with Christ Jesus. Romans 6 verse 1. 
Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. Now those who believe in Baptism by immersion. Look at this portion of scripture and say, well, this is the, this is the proof for the, the visible symbol of being buried in the waters and risen again. Well, I believe in baptism by immersion, but I wouldn't use this text to prove that. The symbols help, but this baptism is a spiritual baptism. This is true. This baptism was true for the thief on the cross who was never baptized. This is a baptism that indicates death to self and being risen to news of life verse number four five for if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection now in part as christ was raised so we should also be raised in the final day we believe that the burial and resurrection is the confidence that one day those who die in christ shall rise in christ But Paul's point in Romans chapter 6 is to illustrate the freedom that we enjoy in union with Christ. As we are united to Adam in his sin, so we are united to Christ in all of his obedience. His life, his death, his burial and his resurrection. And in his burial, there is that power whereby he dies and rises again so that we in our salvation, die to self and rise again to news of life. It is the power for a sanctified life. And so the life, death and burial of Christ and then resurrection, it's all part of how we can walk in news of life. It's important. Now you, you look at the end of that and you say, well, yes, I, I'm a changed person. I now walk with Christ. I, I walk in newness of life. I, I, don't li- I no longer live for sin. Not perfectly, but truly, I I live for righteousness. That's Romans 6. But part of the reason for that is the death and burial of Christ Jesus. That's your hope and your confidence. So Paul is not just talking about history. When he says the gospel involves the fact that and he was buried. It is vital to understand the fullness of our Salvation, our forgiveness, and also our sanctification. Praise God for the burial of his son. And of course, for his subsequent resurrection. When we consider this, we come to love him. And like Joseph, we come to live for him. May God be pleased to use his word to strengthen our resolve and our love for our Savior, for the glory of his name. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania, at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. 
A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.